Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, GC Senior Director in the Global Council office in London. I'm here with Tom King. Tom is uh, GC's practice lead for um, political due diligence, but we're not so much going to be talking about PDD today. We're going to be talking about something a bit different. And it's something that flows from a lot of work that GC has done over the last two or three years on the future of the labour market and the future of work. And this is, of course, largely a question of technological change and the interaction between technological change and established patterns of working, um, established patterns of the relationship between the company and the state, the company and the worker. And it's now a perennial theme um, when we talk about the impact of things like AI or change in the labour market to get very anxious about how individuals as people and companies as collective entities are going to come out the other side of what's sure to be a big change. Um, we're going to start just by talking a little bit about what a, what a company is. I think we often start answering a question like this with a legal analysis or a corporate governance analysis about the kind of contractual relationship that a company represents between the people who start it, um, or the people who own it, and the people who run it. But there's another way of looking at this problem, which is to think about a company as a microcosm of the labour market in its own right. So Tom, why don't you start us off there, mm. with a slightly different take on what a company actually is. Yeah, great. So my, my background on this is that in my previous life before joining GC, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley working with companies and, and trying to raise money, in fact, for charity um, from some of those companies. And, and I had the opportunity to visit the likes of Facebook and Google and other, other major tech firms and, and investors. Um, and, and what I began to see was this very interesting dynamic where uh, the worker, particularly the software engineer, someone who was in a senior position and uh, potentially an elite within that company, had a, a different way of approaching uh, senior executives, management, uh, than I might have expected. And I think one of the big themes that I began to see was this idea of uh, workers using their elite status to secure for themselves, but also for the wider company, a set of um, outcomes, whether that was financial, but typically whether it was values-based, um, that were different and unusual. Um, and I think, obviously, Silicon Valley drives a huge amount of change in, in corporate practices worldwide. Um, so if we want to understand the future of it, that's a good place to start. And, and what you're really seeing now is this differentiation between the employer as a, as a sort of corporate entity and the individual within that uh, as someone who either has a tremendous amount of power because of their expertise and their skills or has almost no power because they sit below the level of the company at which all the money is made. But I guess the point is companies have always represented an equilibrium in that power struggle. Mm. They've always represented an equilibrium in the interests of management in steady, reliable access to labour and labour in steady, reliable access to employment. And the modern model of a company has essentially developed around that equilibrium and that equilibrium has tended towards longer-term employment duration and stable forms of employment. And, of course, there are areas of the labour market which are much less 
secure and where employment is negotiated even on a day-to-day, if not maybe not quite an hour-to-hour basis. But what we seem to be seeing potentially in, in some tech firms, but also in some of the labor markets that tech firms are helping to create, is a shift back towards a much, much more fluid negotiating of that equilibrium yeah. in, which, in which labor is negotiating on much shorter time frames for employment and employers are looking and willing to uh, essentially bargain with labor over much shorter time frames. Do you think that's right? I think that's absolutely right. And I think where you look at the, the sort of premium and software engineer um, community, they are often in, in a position at the largest companies for only a year, two years, maybe three at the most. So they are used to constantly breaking off contact with one company and moving to another and that that lead has already led to a change in the working conditions that those companies offer so you'll see you know very very fancy offices with lots of um, benefits free food all of these kinds of um, perks and, and benefits um, just to keep people where they are for that little little bit longer than they might otherwise stay right and on a platform like TaskRabbit. In fact, that time frame has shrunk down from even one year to potentially hours. Yes. Yeah. So this, and as I say, there's in areas like the agricultural economy, maybe or or labouring or construction, there's often been these kinds of short-term labour markets. But we're now potentially seeing them reaching into other areas of white-collar labour. So that's clearly a big change. Okay. So that's that's a sort of a take on what this is doing to companies. Let's drill down a little more, a bit more into the question of what it's doing in companies. We often hear the suggestion that one of the impacts of automation or the, the deployment of machine learning or AI inside companies is its ability to hollow out uh, the, the conventional model of a corporate. What, what do people mean when they, when they suggest that there might be a hollowing out problem here? I think typically what people mean by that is that the lower skilled jobs will simply be replaced. And I think... Obviously, we've seen some of that previously, and and not just in terms of new technology, but over centuries previous, where machines do just replace human beings doing the same job because they're more efficient. I think there's a more interesting form of hollowing out that we've begun to touch upon already, which is essentially this idea that rather than automating simple tasks, you might begin to automate the way people are managed and, and where the middle tier in a corporate in a corporate environment is suddenly no longer there. It's simply uh, you have people below the software who are surveilled and managed and monitored and you have people above the software who are skilled enough and, and elite enough not to be surveilled in the same but way. But isn't that potentially disappearing tier essentially a proxy for the modern western middle class? I mean, isn't that basically where the bulk of white collar middle class employment yes. ha- has taken place for the last 50 years or so? Yes, and I think it's also where people's aspirations tend towards. So if you're a low, lower skilled worker within a large corporate, that would be your typical career trajectory. So suddenly you're not only managed by a machine, potentially, or an algorithm, you're also, you, you lack the, the, the career path that you might have had, which again, influences your desire to stay at a Right, but so that's an important point, that this, this, middle, this middle tier is a rung on a ladder. Mm. And it's essentially a, it's a rung on the ladder of conventional advancement through the, the, you know, the, the conventional corporate structure. If you take away those rungs, you're potentially left with what looks a bit like a corporate inequality problem, essentially a, a genie effect problem. Um, 
a Gini ratio effect problem inside a corporate in which you've got a highly paid, high status company elite and a, as you say, a, a, a tier of workers below the software who are performing non-automatable, low-skilled, low-status tasks at the bottom and nothing in between. And I mean, of course, companies often currently currently span that spectrum of function and status now, but there's a big chunk in the middle, mm. which essentially smooths that sense of the distance between the CEO and the lowest paid workers. And a, a company that loses that middle starts to look a bit like the corporate equivalent of Brazil. Indeed. Um, and I think that raises all sorts of implications for the people who are part of the elite. So again, in Silicon Valley, a lot of the, the sort of top software engineers have this sense that they are left-wing, they are progressive people, they care about the society they live in, they want to see progression and they want to see an, a, a greater equality of not just opportunity but also outcome. And yet they work at these companies where that's very much not the case. And so they look, at, they look around them and see uh, contracted cleaners on, on $6 an hour, say, or, or some of those other examples of people who have no real um, power or leverage within that corporate. Um, and that, I think, creates a tension for them and it creates potentially some sort of psychic pain uh, when, you, when you try to address the contradictions. And it's, right, them. and it's not just... It's not just the internal conditions of the company. I mean, one of, one, thing, one of the things we have seen at Google and Microsoft mm -hmm. is actually concern not just about the company's internal structure, but concern about who the company is contracting with externally, who they're doing business with, yeah. what kinds of services they're provided and to whom. Yes, I mean, ultimately, there are lots of foreign policy issues that are now being weighed in on by software engineers in California. Well, so, well certainly, yeah. yeah, exactly. So certainly domestic policy issues. Mm -hmm. But that... I mean, that raises a really interesting question. I mean, I think most managers would say they understand perfectly well that this new elite workforce raises questions of retention policy. I mean, how do you create incentives that can lure a, a, you know, a, a highly talented programmer from a tech company to a bank? How can you glamorize some of these roles in a way that attracts and retains these kinds of workforces? But actually what you're describing is almost a form of proto-unionization mm -hmm in which what's being bargained for isn't better material standards, because most of these jobs are among the best materially compensated in the world. What's being bargained for is essentially psychic compensation. Mm. Make me feel good about working in this company. Yeah. Make me you know, confident that at dinner parties, I'm not going to be embarrassed yeah. when I say I work for company X. And that's, that's potentially quite a challenge for managers, because you have, a, you have an elite workforce with whom you need to be very careful about the question of retention, that wants to have a say in the uh, the um, the ethical norms or the external behaviour of the company. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's that's already being seen in the approach taken by Google employees on on uh, defence uh, contracts or uh, some of the other things that we've seen from Silicon Valley on on. Um, on lobbying, so one of the one of the key examples I've seen in the last couple of years was uh, there are a couple of coalitions of tech workers that have been uh, actively uh, funding candidates in places that their own companies have been funding the the opposition. So this is a they they go through the slate of candidates and they look at where where their companies have in, invested money in often Republican candidates, but sometimes the other, and they will explicitly match that or or, or aim to overmatch it. Yeah. 
Well, this is clearly an area where managers are only just starting to, uh, to, to recognise some of these essentially new forms of collective action which are going to redefine the workplace, at least in some of these, these, these elite tech firms. You made a, an, an interesting observation before, which I want to just drill down into a bit more. You, you said that one of the realities for workers below the software is a life of greater surveillance. Mm. Just say a bit more about what you mean by that. So I think we're already seeing um, in some of the major companies where people are doing jobs that we might think have been automated out, but they haven't, um, this tendency to use the data that you collect on your own workers as a way of, of, of managing them. And this, this is not new. This is a, a concept that uh, Frederick Taylor came up with in the early 20th century where scientific management was applied to workforces. Now, obviously, if you're a large, uh, data-rich intelligence technology company, um, you're going to be able to do that in a much more sophisticated way than ever before. You're going to track people uh, even in very personal areas of their lives. Um, And that may well extend into how their healthcare is delivered and all sorts of other things. Uh, I think there's a real danger there for for some of those people uh, who don't really have that much power as to where they work, um, don't really have a choice in moving around as the people above the software do that um, they end up in essentially a kind of modern panopticon um, of the Benthamite type where um, where the only real way of escaping is to is to just work for a similar company elsewhere but there, I mean there are th- there are two um, there are two trends there which seem to me to be reinforcing this I mean one is that the, the kinds of software you're describing now is pervasive mm. and it is a uh, it seems to be a knee, almost a knee-jerk reaction among human resources departments that forms of real-time engagement with the workforce, gamification, mm. the use of workplace satisfaction apps, anything to replace the annual staff survey, which is now regarded as the dinosaur of staff <laughs> engagement, um, says the guy that just completed the Global Council annual staff survey. Um, you know, anything's got to be better than that. But what's, it, what's often being replaced with is, as you say, uh, forms of expectation that workers will engage in basically real-time engagement with the business on how happy they are, on how they feel, uh, on where they are in um, meeting sales targets or other internal work targets. And as you say, the net, the net outcome of that is potentially an environment in which workers feel very heavily surveilled yes. and very sceptical about what the processes they're asked to being engaged in. The other I think, sorry, the, the other thing to say on that is that because of the rise of um, what we might call the gig economy or, or uh, remote working, you mentioned TaskRabbit earlier, that surveillance will extend not only out in the workplace. But right, so that was my into, other point. Surely yeah. remote working is an environment in which you can expect these kinds of surveillance tools to be the contingent expectation that's Indeed. attached to working outside of the workplace. Indeed. So those, those technologies then extend not only into your office, but into your personal life, into your home. You may have an Internet of Things uh, set of devices in your home that somehow become part of this um, uh, arrangement. Well, and the fact that you'll be plugging into a corporate IT system means yeah. that surveilling you is in, almost intrinsic to the yeah. process of remote working. So maybe the days of lying in bed uh, in, your, in your pants doing your work uh, on your laptop is uh, are numbered, right? And, 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 and you put sellotape over the uh, over the camera, I suppose. Um, okay. What about policymakers? They they look at all of this change. Um, what do they want to do about it? 
I think that's that's a really interesting question because it's not just for corporates that this idea of collective identity is important. It's also important for governments because they have to collect tax. They have to see that their citizens are not only gainfully employed but productively employed within uh, structures that are socially beneficial. And rightly or wrongly, the firm, the company, has been the main driver of that over our lifetimes, certainly. I mean, yeah, let's just pause on that point because it seems to me critically important and something that people often miss that if there's a way of thinking about a company essentially as a legal structure there's a way we've just been discussing of thinking about a company as a as a as a, as a, as, as a labor market essentially as an equilibrium between an employer and an employee the conventional the modern company is also an absolute pillar of the fiscal system and the social welfare system mm. and uh, it seems to me this is one of the things that makes policymakers inherently well, which creates a tension in their enthusiasm for things like self-employment because behind that enthusiasm is the inevitable concern that a drift towards, a drift away from these large tax-collecting structures, which are very convenient from the point of view of the state, is in fact a drift towards greater levels of tax leakage and greater levels of lifetime income security, uh, sorry, insecurity, mm. sorry, and a drift towards greater... Uh, levels of lifetime income insecurity potentially. Yes, and and so it's quite interesting when you look at how uh, different political parties are approaching the role of the worker, that they they often hark back to this idea of the firm. So, if we were to take the UK as an example, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party treats the citizen primarily as a worker, but their policy solutions are focused very much on a democratic form of capitalism. So you're not getting rid of the firm, you're not undermining the role of the firm, you're actually, in their minds, enhancing the role of the firm by bringing more people into its ownership structure. Right, partly, presumably, because the firm has also proven to be a very effective forum for things like collective action, mm. um, which is going to make it inherently attractive as a structure to, to the left. Mm. But it seems to me that one of the things we're going to need to watch there is going to be this ongoing tension between the desire to promote self-employment, the desire to enthuse about the entrepreneurialism and the flexibility that potentially goes with it, but a concern that, in fact, a move away from large corporate structures is one in which many of the preferences of government um, are, are, are eroded. Mm. I, I think there's also the question of what these proto-unionisation uh, movements might look like. Do they actually become more like a traditional trade union? Will there be elite tech workers with uh, who are standing up at the Labour Party conference and, and having influence on policy? I doubt that. Um, because of the shift in society from political uh, collectivism to, to individualism, which I don't think you can put back in the box... And so, but isn't one of the things that social media does is it basically finds another way of taking, or yeah. finds a way of taking an atomized w workforce and bringing them together in forms of proto-unionization that yeah. don't involve paying dues and don't involve going to the uh, going to the going to the weekly shop meeting, but involve you know uh, being willing to, to, to get involved in, yes. in, in in pieces of online activism. So then you get an acceleration essentially in the way that these groupings influence things. So you essentially get a, an acceleration of, of what can happen, um, whether that's a protest, whether that's a campaign, what, what have you. Sometimes they will, they will spin up very quickly. Um, but equally, you probably get a shallower 
um, tail to that that movement. So there are pros and cons to that for uh, both companies and governments. Um, you can you can quite easily see um, in countries around the world protest movements gaining traction very rapidly and then dwindling. Um, the question is whether, as you say, through social media or other means, people can sustain some of those uh, some of those campaigns. I mean, I suppose one final observation might be that where where managers are are thinking through the way they're going to deploy automation in their companies, where they're going to deploy machine learning and AI, where they can anticipate in advance that it's going to have an impact on uh, the current structure of a company or the level of employment. Do you think firms that take an excessively kind of reductive view of their human capital are potentially in line for paying a political cost? Absolutely. I think that regulators have to be considering in the future how how they're going to track, monitor, surveil companies that are applying that very um, reductionistic approach to to human capital, then they're going to have to think about how to enforce and punish um, companies that are essentially harming people's rights or harming people's um, it, It seems to me one of the things that it's maybe easy to miss here is that this kind of change at the level of an individual firm is just rationalization. Mm. This kind of change at the level of 100,000 firms is a social revolution. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I'm not sure uh, there are some concrete conclusions there, but there's clearly plenty to think about. Global Council did run a conference earlier this year on the politics of AI, and we ran a very, very interesting session as part of that conference on change in the labor market and the the ways in which AI is driving change in the world of work. Um, You can access that content on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.co.uk. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.